would, would you please um, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, and we'll read the first 17 verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we would ask of you this morning that you would bring us to the clarity of your words so that we would truly experience the assurance of pardon. We recognize, Father God, those words that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And though we read them as true, that, Father God, sometimes the experience of that truth can be far from us. We pray, Father God, this morning that we would know the assurance of pardon in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, last week, um, you would have heard a message uh, by Andrew on the confession of sin. And of course, the assurance of pardon follows um, that naturally speaking, that the assurance of pardon and the confession of sin go hand in hand. But as I was preparing this message in light of Romans 8, and bearing in mind that we as a church are 
understanding why we worship God covenantally. I recognize that this morning could be a little uncomfortable for perhaps some of you. Now, I purposely don't want to make any of you feel uncomfortable unnecessarily. That's not my intention, but it might just be like, um, I guess the kind of discomfort I'm talking about is you're not quite sure what is happening. Like if you're in the bath and you put your foot on the tap and you're not quite sure if it's freezing cold or boiling hot, have you ever had those moments? And then you realize it's really hot and now I've burnt my toe. Well, the experience for some of you this morning may be a little akin to that. It may be like that. Because we're addressing the assurance of pardon, and often some people don't understand what we are actually saying when we are assuring everyone who hears the assurance of pardon that they are actually pardoned. So I find it very difficult uh, to go to churches where they don't practice infant baptism and they don't practice or they bar children from the communion table, and yet they practice the confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Well, if they are assured of their pardon, then why aren't they baptized and why aren't they coming to the Lord's table? So it makes no sense to me to be in a fellowship where you can hear the assurance of pardon every single week and then not participate in the things that are for pardoned people. Do you, underst you understand that? So I can understand that that is somewhat of a bit of a tension for some, some of us mentally. So for you to truly appreciate the assurance of pardon, you simply have to take God at his word. So what I would like us to do this morning as we make our way through the text is to take God at his word. So each and every week, as we participate in a service of covenant renewal, every single person in this church, from the very youngest to the very oldest, not only is called to confess their sin before God, but afterwards gets to hear the assurance of pardon. I want you to think, just for a moment, what it means to hear the assurance of pardon. What do you think is happening to you and to your children when they hear the assurance of pardon? Are they pardoned? I want you to be fully convinced that when God speaks, he means what he says and he says what he means. And I want to be able to show you as we go through the passage that God protects his covenant that God protects his salvation, the value of his salvation, with grace. And we don't need to add further protections. We don't need to commit the same type of error that Eve did. You remember? We're not allowed to eat the fruit of the tree, but neither are we allowed to touch it. No, Eve, you've gone further than, what God, than God went. You are adding an extra level of protection which turns out to be the very means by which you fall quicker. And this is exactly what a lot of Christians do, especially parents with young children. They try to protect by withholding certain privileges that belong to the covenant community of God's people because they think they're safeguarding their children or safeguarding the gospel. And the truth is, such parents are doing neither. So. 
simple rule. God says what he means, he means what he says, and we take God at his word. It, it, it really is that simple, but it is almost very difficult to do. Now, having ministered in Scotland for uh, just over 13 years, and before that in the northwest of England for just over 10, and then before that with Cornish people, which was for a lot longer because they're very difficult to deal with. Um, um, but you begin to realize that different cultures appreciate and, uh, uh, and uh, find it easier to accept things than others. And in Scotland, one of the things that we began to find amongst all Scottish people, it really didn't matter from what denomination they were from, that they were a bit like the man who came to Jesus wanting Jesus to heal his son, to cast out the demon because the disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus says, would well, you believe? And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm there, but I'm not there. I believe, but at the same time, I don't believe. And someone has said, that you cannot be a Scottish Presbyterian unless you believe that Jesus Christ can save everybody apart from you. Yeah, let that sink in. That's how bad and difficult it is to minister in Scotland. That you have Christians who believe that God's saving work can save that person and that person and that person, but I'm not quite so sure he's done it for me. And so now we begin to realize that there are two things that we must consider when we consider the assurance of pardon. Not only the reality of the assurance of pardon as spoken in God's word, but the experience of God's pardon. Because unless I feel assured, unless I have the experience of assurance, I may not live in light of that assurance. And if I don't live in light of the assurance, I may live in a way contrary to the gospel. So now we begin to realize it's, it's what I experience is as important as the genuine article itself in part. And so assurance must be, simply put, assuring. It must be experientially assuring. Not only must it be true, it has to be true first, but it must be experientially true because I can keep going to God's word and know that I am positionally saved. But my experience of salvation can come and go. I mean, perhaps you have had moments where you know you're saved, and yet for some reason you cannot shake the feeling, what if I'm not? That's a genuine experience. And so I want to be able to deal with that this morning so that you can leave here knowing that when you hear the assurance of pardon, you really are forgiven in Christ Jesus. And notice the qualification, forgiven in Christ Jesus. So let me begin with a couple of difficulties that we must overcome. The first is an illustration of someone who has bought almost a priceless piece of art, say a painting, and they find this painting aesthetically beautiful. They look at it and it's beautiful. And beauty, the way beauty works is that you know it when you see it. You know it when you see it, it is just beautiful. And this painting cost hundreds of thousands, let's say even millions. And then the person who purchased this painting finds out that it's not genuine, it's fake. And as they look at the painting now, 
they no longer find it beautiful. But it's the same painting. The painting hasn't actually changed. But what has changed is that it's no longer true. And see, people who love truth can never be convinced by a lie. It doesn't matter if nothing else has changed. They can never bring themselves back to love the painting because the element of the truth is gone. What they thought was true is not true. And now that they know it's a lie, it's a fake, it's a copy, not only have they been duped, but more importantly, even though the painting hasn't changed, they have changed, their experience has changed because they cannot be assured by a lie. No one can get assurance. No one can be comforted by that which is not true. And so, as we look at the assurance of pardon, it must be true. It must be true, because if it's a lie, then we can get no assurance from it. But then, we are sinful people. And as sinful people, we don't mind, we don't mind being comforted by lies. Here's the other complication. At the same time we long for the truth, it is equally true that we can be so damaged and so hurt by the experiences of life that our expectation of what is actually could be good for us is lowered to such an extent that we will then be willing to be comforted by a lie. Now, this is real. I'm not, obviously, no confidence is broken, but imagine a woman okay, who basically has been married to her husband for a number of years, but then begins to realize that her husband doesn't love her anymore. And I've ministered to plenty of people where one or the other couple has walked into the other person in the morning and says, I'm leaving, I just don't love you anymore. I can change a person for good. It's a very difficult thing to deal with. But in order to keep the relationship together, the woman tells her husband, please tell me that you love me. Please tell me that you love me. Please tell me that you love me. And so the husband does because the woman is willing to live under false pretenses because she can convince herself. Even if it's not true, if she hears those words, even though she knows it's not true, Okay, she's willing to live under that falseness because the alternative is much worse. That's how deceptive we can be. Think of Jacob and Esau. What kind of blessing could it have been when you know it was for the other brother? Why are we willing to accept words that we know are actually for somebody else, but are actually being spoken to us under pretense and then we, we rest in that assurance? Well, because the heart can be so damaged, like so damaged, that we're even willing to hear what is false under false pretenses because the alternative is much worse. Like much, much worse. And so we have several complications as people to overcome before we can truly appreciate the assurance of pardon as found in, in Scripture. We live in a world where Christians, just like unbelievers, when hurt and damaged, are willing to be deceived because the alternative of not having that minimal comfort is much worse than facing the actual reality. And so the Scottish Presbyterian, who believes that Jesus Christ can save everybody else, but they're not quite sure about them, right? Something is going on in them that causes them to constantly doubt what they know is true 
objectively, but they cannot experience that truth subjectively. They, they just cannot bring themselves to it. And the reason why that's so important is because we live the Christian life according to what we are convicted by. We live the Christian life according not to what we read in Scripture, but that which convinces us. And so if we're not convinced that we are pardoned or forgiven, then the danger is we could end up living like unforgiven people and then do as we please. See, pastorally, this is, is deeply sensitive because we want to say, well, you need to be objective, not subjective. No, the assurance of pardon is as equally objective as it is experiential. And this is what we see particularly in Romans chapter 8. So there are levels of importance. Firstly, you'll notice that every single week, as I said, everyone here gets to hear the assurance of pardon. And those who perhaps don't appreciate the covenant and don't understand the covenant sometimes guard away from the belief of that they are truly pardoned. We often want to protect our children from not hearing things or from hearing things that might uh, cause them to wander into doubt, right? Don't listen to that. Don't, we want to protect our children from doubt. Or in a covenantal setting uh, or a non-covenantal setting, we might want to protect our children from presumption, that I am presuming too much, that I've heard the assurance of pardon, but am I presuming too much, like a Scottish Presbyterian? Am I presuming that I'm saved when I'm actually not saved? And so a parent will do this kind of mental math in their head, that how can I, how can I allow my child to hear the assurance of pardon if my child is not one of the elect? And so they begin to put in safeguards, uh, ignoring the safeguards that already God has already put there. How can I allow my child to be baptized and come to the Lord's table if my child is not elect? You see the problem. We say the assurance of pardon every single week, and yet all of a sudden we have these other questions. Now these are going to be easily answered, believe it or not, because this issue was actually risen in the day in a book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. It was a book that I studied um, at the Free Church College in Scotland. And The Marrow of Modern Divinity was arguing for the free offer of the gospel. And it was banned by Scottish Presbyterians. And it was banned by Scottish Presbyterians on the basis, then how can you offer the gospel genuinely to all people if all people are not elect? Doesn't it make the offer disingenuous? Logically, that seems correct. Biblically, it's wrong, but you can see the logic. And so the book got banned. You're not allowed to offer the, you're not allowed to offer the gospel freely to all people. Well, that's just ridiculous. You're putting in a safeguard that God has already taken care of. Charles Spurgeon says, well, I'll only preach the gospel to the elect if you can show me who they are. <laughs> You cannot do that. And so now we wrestle with this idea of, well, could it be possible that we are hearing things <clears throat> that don't apply? And so the reason why a lot of parents and even adults find this a difficult path to tread 
and they're careful about what their children hear and don't hear and participate in, hence why I do not understand why churches that do not practice uh, infant baptism and allow children to come to the Lord's table then practice confession of sin and assurance of pardon. It makes no sense. But they do it because I think they just haven't thought through the issues or they haven't been in pastoral ministry long enough to know actually what the issues are. And so there is a real and genuine objection that Romans 8 takes care of. And I want you to be assured this morning that God is taking care of the value of his salvation. You don't need to protect it. God has protected the value of his salvation and he does it with grace. He does it with grace. And so what I would like us to do is to briefly find our way down through these 17 verses in Romans chapter 8 as a summary of what we are actually saying. We can understand the objections, we can understand the concerns, but what we should not accept under any condition is the willingness to put in safeguards that God has already taken care of. So in these first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8, we learn, pay attention, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So by virtue of your union with Christ, there is no condemnation. You are free, you are forgiven, you have been set apart, you will not die, you have eternal life with God, you are his forever. You'll also notice that those who belong to Christ Jesus have been set free from sin and death, which means that you can now live in a way that pleases God. You can now live in a way that God wants you to live. When you were bound to sin, you were not free to live for God. You could not live for God because you were bound to a sinful and, and bon a way of bondage. You just could not get out of that. But now you have been set free by Christ Jesus through the work of the Spirit. You are now free to live for God, for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have gone through a definitive change. Romans 6, you have been definitively sanctified. You have been truly set free, truly set apart. You can truly say no to sin and yes to God. That's, that's now where you live. And more importantly, in this passage, it speaks about us being sons and heirs, that we are being adopted. And the beauty of being adopted by God is that your DNA changes. When a person is adopted by God, their spiritual DNA changes. No longer sinful, but righteous in Christ Jesus. There is a DNA change. There is a definitive change that you have actually become a different person through adoption. So it's not that you actually are adopted by God. You actually become a different child. And then you're the same person, but you become a new child in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are no condemnation, are led by the Spirit of God. And the way that they now deal with sin is if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this, Christ's work is vicarious. Hence where you get the word vicar from in the Church of England. Vicarious means I've done it all for you. 
But the work of the Spirit in your life is cooperative, means that the Spirit does it with you. So Christ does it for you, hence why you are saved, with adding no works of your own. And the work of the Spirit is cooperative, meaning that if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Christ's work is vicarious, the Spirit's work is cooperative. And so now we begin to see that the assurance of pardon that you receive in Romans chapter 8 comes down to three things in particular. Number one, the finished work of Christ. Number two, you can now be a person that can say yes to God and no to sin. And number three, your mind is no longer hostile towards God, but you walk in conjunction with the Spirit. You have the Spirit. And so the assurance of pardon is not just hearing the words, but it is a definitive change. So for those of you who think the assurance of pardon is just nice, pleasant words by which I can rest a weary head, you're missing the fullness of what the assurance of pardon actually is. It means that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have the full assurance of faith, as we read in Hebrews earlier. You also recognize here that everything that the Christian now does, he does in accordance with the Spirit. So you have the finished work of Christ, the relationship with the Spirit, and the fact that you can say yes to God and no to sin. That's the assurance of pardon. And so every assurance that the Christian has, has may not be essentially something which they feel but it will always be something which they experience. Because the moment you begin to experience the ability to be able to say yes to God and no to sin, that's your assurance of pardon. The moment you begin to experience the discomfort of conviction is the most comforting experience that you could have. So the discomfort of conviction is comforting because it is it is the very means by which you are experiencing the work of the Spirit in your life. So the discomfort comforts you and then assures you of your pardon, that you are truly forgiven in Christ Jesus. So let me now address with that background and those, those real key definitive marks, the finished work of Christ, union with Christ, okay, the fact that you can say yes to God and no to sin, and the fact that you now live a life that will not die, that is, it is cooperative with the Spirit, that that is how you're able to live. They're not just positional truths or mental truths. They are experiential realities. You now live a different life. So let me address a few questions. The first is this, <clears throat> that can I be really assured of the assurance of pardon? And the answer should be yes. The second is this, that if I stop my child from participating in the means of grace, am I protecting them from anything? And the answer is no, nothing. Am I damaging them in any way? Yeah, pretty much. Because you're creating a kind of presumption that doesn't actually exist in God's word. So let me first deal with eternal assurance. When I was young, uh, and growing up in the church, I had a very simple question that I think most Christians have had, and it goes something like this. 
when Satan fell from heaven and there was no sin in heaven, what's to stop me from falling from heaven when I get there? Fair question. So how assuring is my eternal assurance? So as a child, I'm growing up, and the answer I got was, well, you just won't. <laughs> okay, I, that satisfied me for a number of years because of the person telling me I trusted them. But as I got older, it was no longer assuring. How is it possible to, for Satan to fall in a place where there is no sin, and then me, consequently, be assured that when I get to heaven, I won't fall? How does that actually happen? Well, again, that's been answered. Augustine of Hippo put it this way, that in the beginning, I'm going to use a bit of Latin here. This is not showing off. It's because he wrote in Latin. But here we go. He says that we are posse beccare and posse non beccare, which means that when God created Adam, he created Adam able to sin and able not to sin. Freedom. Able to sin and able not to sin. Posse beccare and posse non beccare. Able to sin, able not to sin. And therefore, when he was tempted into sin, a definitive change happened to him. And the change was that he became a person who was non posse non beccare, which means that he was not able not to sin. So you go from being a person who is able to sin or not sin, and then the moment you do sin, you become a person who cannot but sin. Non posse non beccare. Not able not to sin. You cannot help but sin. That's the second stage. That's when you are fallen. And then in Christ Jesus, because of Romans 5 and Romans 6, which we read, the definitive sanctification, we are posse non beccare, which means that we can now say yes to God and no to sin. We are not free from sin. We are not sinless. We still will sin. But now in Christ Jesus, we have the ability to say yes to God and no to sin, which we did not have whilst we belonged to Adam. That's assuring. That's the first sign of assurance, being in Christ and being able to say yes to him and no to sin. Posse non beccare. But that still doesn't answer the question of when I get to heaven, because if I can still sin, if I'm, if I'm able not to sin and I'm able to sin as well, what does that deal with? Well, by the time you get to heaven and you are glorified, and I'm using heaven because I'm reflecting my childhood understanding of here and there, when you are truly glorified, you then become a person uh, who is non posse beccare not able to sin. And so now I'm satisfied. Now I know that what happened in the beginning will not happen to me. Because the work of Christ not only assures that I will be set free from sin by the righteous life of Christ, but once I am glorified because I will see Christ as he is, I will then be the type of person who won't be able to sin. I won't have any desire to sin. I just won't do it. That's the assurance of pardon, eternally speaking. So if you ever have a child growing up and they ask that question, there's the answer. There are the four stages that you go through. In glorification, you will be the type of person who will not sin in Christ Jesus.
You just won't sin because you belong to Christ, because you're in Christ, the righteous person. That's why we can sit here this morning and know that we have eternal security or eternal assurance that we are forever saved in Christ Jesus. Well, here's the second issue. Those who say that by giving children the assurance of pardon without knowing if they are elect, fall into the same kind of error that those did back in the day when they banned the book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity. When that book was banned, it was banned on the basis that because you do not know who the elect are, you cannot genuinely offer the gospel to all men. Because to do so, it would mean that it is a disingenuous offer. You see the problem. But that problem is overcome in the fact that <clears throat> in the grace of God and the ability <clears throat> for God to give life, the objection is taken care of by God's, um, <clears throat> by God's decree. That what God does, God takes care of. And when God commands us to proclaim the gospel to all men, women, boys and girls without exception, he knows what we don't know. And it doesn't stop him from commanding us to proclaim the gospel to all men. The point is, is that God knows the same objection we do of what it sounds like. But in the de decree of God, it makes perfect sense to offer the free gospel to all men because God takes care of salvation with the means of grace. And therefore, if you think as a parent that by not extending baptism to your child or not extending communion to your child because you don't know if they're elect or not extending the assurance of pardon to your child because you're not sure if they're elect, you're doing the very opposite of what God does. God actually takes care of all of those potential objections that you might have. And he takes care of it in his grace because it is the grace of God, Titus 2, that teaches us to say yes to God and no to sin. You begin to know who the saved are by whether or not they live in accordance with the Spirit. And so when Paul says here in verse 13, I'll read it for us, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice that he has just said in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is no condemnation. So how is it possible to say to a person, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die? How can both be true? And the answer is because they are. And it's true in this way. The death here cannot be speaking of a physical death because that comes to all people regardless of whether they're saved or not before Christ returns. It has to be speaking about eternal separation. And what it shows us is this, that time and truth go hand in hand, that given enough time, the truth will always come out, which means that if you continue to live the way of life that you are, you'll prove yourself right. If you continue to live in the flesh, you'll prove that you didn't belong over time. And if you continue to live in cooperation with the work of the Spirit over time, it'll be assuring to you that you do belong. God takes care of these presumptions. God takes care of the possible presumptions and assumptions that you can make. 
So there is a way of life that if lived, it'll prove to you over time who you belong to. That's the assurance of pardon. God takes care of it. You don't have to put in any special measures. God takes care of that. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Is that true? Yes. Is it also true that if you do not put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, you will die? Yes. And depending on which one you're living, you're either going to be assured of eternal security with Christ or you're going to be blinded by the sin and not notice anything. You see, both are true. We don't have to put in an extra safeguard as if, as if we're saying to God, Lord, you were just not clear enough there, so I'm just adding. I mean, think how presumptuous that is of you to think you've not made yourself clear enough, Lord, so I'm going to do what Eve did. Neither shall you touch it. I'm just going to add an extra layer here because I just want to be doubly sure. I mean, what do you think your view is of God's word when you add to it in that way? It's highly presumptuous. So I want to assure you that there's a way of life, if lived, over time it'll prove true. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who live according to the Spirit. But if you don't, then it's death. Paul's quite clear. He's, he's, he doesn't even hold them in tension because there is no tension. Both are equally true. And so the point here is this, that God takes care of covenantal presumptuousness. And so those who accuse me, or even you, being what we practice, what we do, is though you're being covenanty, covenantally presumptuous, so no, I'm not. I'm just believing God's word in faith. And time and truth go hand in hand. And over time, the truth will always come out. That's not presumptuousness. That's just living life according to God's word because God takes care of those other areas. We don't have to be like Eve and add safeguards because they're not actually safeguards. If anything, they cause doubt in the children and the Scottish Presbyterians, which basically causes them never to take communion because they're never truly sure whether or not they're saved. So they stop themselves. That's the problem. Well, let me close with this. When I give the assurance of pardon each week, or not me, or somebody else, Pastor Evans, or Andrew, or Kyle, and you hear the assurance of pardon each week, and Jeff gives the assurance of pardon, be assured that you are forgiven in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven in Christ Jesus. No, no question whatsoever. And so when your children hear the words, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus, it's true. When they hear the assurance of pardon after the confession of sin, it is true. And it can never be anything but true. And so, parents who try to safeguard are actively, are actually practicing a kind of works righteousness. They're actually trying to practice a kind of works righteousness. And it goes something like this. When I'm convinced you are saved, then I'll extend the grace and blessings of God to you, the means of grace. Now, I don't know any parent who's a good enough judge of their child's heart to ever make that decision. 
But that's exactly where the state of the church is in, in many quarters. When I know, then I'll extend it to you. How presumptuous is that? How judgmental is it of that? And so could I be in error? Yes, but at least I'm erroring on the side of faith and assurance and trust in God that he knows what he's doing better than me. And so the assurance of pardon is this, that when you hear it, God means what he says. That's it. That when your children hear the assurance of pardon, they are pardoned in Christ Jesus. That's what it means. And now you can live a life according to the experience and the positional truth. The truth of God's word and as it becomes experientially true as you grow up, right? Because as adults, you confess your sins differently than the way children do. Because you know more. But it's still real. Maybe different, but it's no more real than what it is when you're a child confessing your sin. Believe that and know that if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you have the assurance of pardon. Because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Ever. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that with a complicated issue, you take care of all the complications and you ask us to do something very simply. And that is to hear your word, receive it in faith and to live according to it. We thank you, Father God, that you have made it so simple for us. And we ask, Father God, for forgiveness for why we have in so many quarters have made it so complicated. Forgive us for this error and allow us and cause us to hear your word in faith and simply respond. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, let's stand together this morning as we sing uh, the hymn, Great God of Wonders 306.